Father, we thank you for the Gospel of Matthew and how he was so faithful to write these things down, as well as the other Gospel writers and your disciples, your apostles, Lord. They have so well communicated what has taken place so long ago, and yet the truth still stands today. And help us to assimilate that truth, make it our own, and may we walk in it. Father, as we conclude today the Gospel of Matthew, I pray that it would just be rich, that it would be equivalent to tilling the soil and adding amendments and causing your word to grow. We know that this is your intent. So, Father, may it be accomplished in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have been a manager or you've been a head of a crew or you've been in charge of one or two workers, you assign tasks. If you give too many tasks at one time, it can be a problem. Our Lord Jesus Christ has given us a task. Now with that are several subtasks that we have to accomplish, but he's given us a task, one thing to do. We have one thing that he left us with that we're supposed to accomplish. Now, have you ever given somebody one task to do? You have one thing to do, and then you went to see how they did, like these pictures. You had one thing to do. And you look at that, well, you got it mostly right, but not quite. You see that? Could you imagine being the paint guy out there on the road? And You had one job, just one job to do. Do you notice that one? Somebody with uh, obsessive compulsive disorder would look at that and they would just be apoplectic. What's, what's wrong with that one brick that is supposed to be, you know, on the other side? We have another one there? I can't quite see that one. <laughs> just one job. Just one job to do. Now imagine you are... Imagine you are these individuals. And you have one job. Just one job. And your job, we're going to find out what that is. Yeah, look at that. That was a landscaper that did that. A landscaper, yeah. So imagine God has given you a task. He's given you something to do, and you have to ask yourself, are you doing the task like those guys? Or are you doing the task like a skilled craftsman or craftswoman? Have you really applied yourself? Have you gone from an intern to an apprentice to a journeyman? That's what God wants to accomplish in us. He wants us all to be journeymen. And if we do, he can use us. If we don't, we're always fumbling. Even if we get it right, there are still mistakes which are made. And we know how to go back and correct those mistakes. If somebody's a journeyman, he knows how to go back and correct the mistakes which are made. And so... We're going to find out what that one task is, but before we get there, this is one of the resurrection chapters in the Bible, the one that tells us, the first gospel that tells us that Jesus rose from the dead. And so since it deals with the resurrection, we want to make sure we look at the resurrection, what it means, 
as far as being in the New Testament. And so that's why we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, I'm just going to read it to you, all of 15, and then I'm going to go back and explain it. It says in verse 1, chapter 15, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for his sins according to the scripture, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born, for I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses of God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ, the firstfruits then, when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom of God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that he does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son of himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean, my brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? Let us eat, drink, and, or excuse me, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrects good character. Come back to your senses and as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, 
but just a seed, perhaps wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds have another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind, the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And stars differ from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual, the first man, was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we are born the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable or perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash and a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, for the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable and immortality, or excuse me, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So this is a treatise. This is a term paper. This is a, a, a doctrinal dissertation on the resurrection and he makes his case. You have the story of the resurrection, how he had received it and how it was passed on. And he said he was one abnormally born. And by extension, we have received it because the apostles received it. So it went from Jesus to the apostles, least of all to Paul. From Paul, he went to the Gentiles. The Gentiles gave it to pastors throughout the history of the church. And, and to priests as well, because the Catholic Church was the only church that was around. Then it went through the Protestant churches, and it came to all of us. It has been transferred over thousands of years, and we have it now. Now, once we get it, what are we supposed to do with it? Save it and put it in the corner. What's that one movie? My Precious. You hold it all to yourself, and you don't share it. We know that that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to give it to somebody else. Also, he goes on and makes a defense for the resurrection. If there is not a resurrection, Christ has not been raised and neither will we. We in turn are false witnesses if we are still lost in our sins and there is no hope for us whatsoever. So he's making this case and he also says that Christ is the first fruits from the dead in verse 20 and he's making first an appeal to scripture here. So what he does, he goes, look, the resurrection has taken place. Let's look at scripture. Christ is the first fruits. Now, this was taking place during the harvest time, usually around August, uh, September. 
and they'd make these booze and it was a feast of ingatherings. And what they would have to do is they'd have to go out and get the first fruits of the field. And usually when you grab the first fruits, you look for the best that's out there. You pull it in, you go, whoa, look at those heads of wheat. Those things are marvelous. And Martha, look at the And you go back and forth. And this is wonderful. Well, you're supposed to give that to the Lord. The first fruits go to the Lord during this particular feast. Jesus is the first fruits of the harvest. We are the harvest. And so Paul is referring back to Scripture. And this is replete through Scripture. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. In Nehemiah 10, 35, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. And there's other scriptures, Ezekiel 44:30 and Proverbs 3, verse 9. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. That's like when we give, we're supposed to take the amount that we make, take the first fruit of that and write the check or give the cash. And that's how we're supposed to give it. Whatever that amount is, that's how we're supposed to operate. And so Christ of humanity, all of humanity, he is the first fruits because he was a man. He's also God, but he was a man. And that was given to God. We know uh, previously from the chapters we've gone through that he went to heaven and offered his own blood as a sacrifice there, which makes us acceptable in the eyes of God. We are the rest which are going to be coming in. And later on in, in verses 50 and 51, he talks about the rapture, how we're going to exit this place. If we are dead, we'll be raised from the dead. If we are alive, we'll be translated immediately. So he makes a second case. He goes to a case of, not just the scripture, appealing to scripture, but he appeals to the ways of the world. He said, what are those going to do who are baptized for the dead? Now, some people incorrectly say, we're supposed to be baptized for the dead. We are not supposed to be baptized for the dead. He's making a case that even the pagan world believed in the resurrection, and they're being baptized for their dead, and what are they going to do? What, just give up their belief? They even believe it, but he is dealing with Jews specifically of the vein of the Sanhedrin, not the Sanhedrin, the um, uh, Sadducees, excuse me. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, the Sadducees did not. And so there's people who are getting saved and saying there's no resurrection. And he's going, what, what are you talking about? There is a resurrection. And these people were in the church of Corinth. And so he's dealing with this. So he makes an appeal to reason after making an appeal to scripture. Then he makes an appeal to to experience. Why do you do what you do? Well, he was willing to fight off wild beasts. He was willing to be left for dead twice. He was willing to be shipwrecked. And why is he doing it? For the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, he's a fool to do this. And so he makes that appeal to experience. He goes, look at my own life. I've been doing this stuff. And you guys don't believe there's a resurrection. Why do you think I'm doing this? is basically what he makes the appeal to. And he chastises those who act like there is no resurrection. How would you act if you knew there is no resurrection, no judgment, you just die and that's it? How would you act? You would probably do a whole lot of things that you shouldn't do. Why? Because eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Oh, wait, he said that. And he goes, stop sinning, stop believing that way because what you believe determines how you act. 
If you believe there's going to be a judgment, that prevents us from doing some of the things we would like to do because it feels good in the flesh, but in the spirit it violates God's ordinances, his laws, his treatises, his way of life. And his very being would be violated if we did that. And so he's making this case. And then some think that the resurrection is impossible. If you go up to somebody on the street who's not a believer and you say, you know what? There's going to be a resurrection. (laughs) Oh, yeah? How's that going to happen? I haven't seen anybody come out of a grave yet. And you say, well, there are stories of some. "Uh Uh-huh, yeah, sure. And they're like epics and people getting out of the graves and spirits walking around graveyards. "Uh Uh-huh, sure. So if you talk to somebody like that who doesn't believe in God, they're not going to believe in a resurrection. And so he starts to make a case for that as well. And the case that he makes, it's an appeal to nature. And he says, just look at nature. By the way, the Old Testament was a foreshadow of all the things that were to come in the New Testament, right? Well, even the planet Earth is set up in everything that is living. It has a seed. And the seed of everything that is living doesn't look anything like the adult. Now, I have a a new grandson. His name is Steel. He is going to be a man of steel when he grows up. But right now, the way that he looks... He can't even sit up. He, he just likes to take his legs and go back and forth like this, and his arms start flailing like that. And, and I look at his dad, and his dad's just like, and he's making funny sounds to get the, his son to laugh. And, you know, it's kind of comical. But he doesn't really look anything like his dad, who's over six foot tall. He's like pint size. He's small. And what did he look like nine months ago? Nothing even close to what he looks like today. And the same thing with the seeds of the field. You bite into an apple. My wife just got me a bunch of Honeycrisp apples. I like the Honeycrisp apples. You bite in too deep, you see a little apple seed in there. And you say, that's an apple tree. And you go, yeah, right. No, that's a seed. Well, the same thing applies to our bodies as well. And God says, this is all set up in nature. You look at the stars. Some stars are really bright. Betelgeuse in the constellation Orion is really bright. Our sun is really bright. It's the brightest thing in the sky. And the others are so dim, you can hardly see them. So the glory of one is differing from another. And he says, the animals. Uh, have you ever eaten fish eggs, roe, caviar, that type of thing? It can be real tasty. Some can be real salty. But do they look anything like fish? Not, they, not even close. Do tadpoles look like frogs? They don't. And so he's making an appeal to nature. Just look at nature. He says that is how it is going to be. Now he goes on and he says our bodies will be raised and will never again die because of Christ. And he makes the case Adam, a living being, compared to Jesus, a life-giving spirit. So Adam, everything in the flesh dies, but a life-giving spirit remains alive forever. He says we look like Adam, but now, once we are resurrected, we will look like Jesus. And I don't mean you'll look exactly like Jesus. What I mean is our bodies will be like his bodies. And I've mentioned this before, that he didn't need a car or a mule or anything to get from place to place. And he just materialized, beam me up, Scotty, that type of thing. And imagine if he creates a universe... And we say, I want, and it won't be Alpha Centauri, but if you say, I'd like to go to Alpha Centauri. Oh, when would you like to go there? Now. Boom! You're, you're over at Alpha Centauri. Something like that. And that's how it's going to be. 
It is going to be a marvelous existence. And he's trying to communicate this to the church in Corinth. And he says, it is impossible for the bodies that we possess right now to inherit heaven. Flesh and blood cannot inherit heaven. Why? Because we are utterly sinful and fallen. We are destined to die in these bodies. But because of this, because we know all this information now, we're supposed to be filled with joy and rejoice. First Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. I read it. Therefore, my dear brother, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor for the Lord or in the Lord is not in vain. It's not something that is going to amount to nothing. To give you a personal example of this, I, uh, last week I was riding around with my trailer. I had this little trailer that I use sometimes. And as I'm backing it up this long driveway, I'm looking back at the wheel on the trailer and it's doing this as I'm backing up. And I'm going, that does not look right. And I got out and the entire hub was gone. And I go, this is not... And I was driving for miles and this thing was still on there. I jacked up the trailer and the tire goes, right over to the side. go... Oh, this could have been really bad. Well, I got it all fixed. A few hundred bucks later, I got it all fixed. I stuck it back on there. I go, good. Until the next time. And it's going to break down again. And then I have to deal with it again. Everything keeps breaking down here. If it, a guy I worked for when I had my first job, he said, if it works, it's going to break. Great. Well, that's, you know, just over and it's got Groundhog Day, just going over and over and over. But when we get to heaven, it's not going to be like that. It's not going to be Groundhog Day. And one final thing about the resurrection. There were these people called the Docetists, which gave rise to Docetism. And Docetism believes that Jesus really wasn't physical. It only appeared that way, but he really wasn't physical because everything physical is evil and it's fallen, so Jesus couldn't possibly have been physical, so therefore he didn't rise in a physical body. Although you may have seen him, it really wasn't the case. I want to let you know about Luke chapter 24, verse 37 through 43. It says, they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. This is when Jesus appeared to them after the resurrection. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And so Jesus had an actual physical resurrection, even though his body was spiritual at that point. It was kind of transformed. And so our bodies are going to be transformed as well. So going into Matthew now, Matthew 28, this last chapter that we have to deal with here, says, after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene And the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven And going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. In other words, they fainted is what happened. They just went right over, just collapsed. And so we have the women, we have the stone, which is there. We have the earthquake, and we have the angel. Now the women, Mary Magdalene, we know that she was there. And according to Luke chapter 24, verse 10, we have Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and other women. So there was not just one woman or two women. There were several women there. And again, I I brought this up last week, how the women were chosen 
to be the ones to get the first information that Jesus had in fact risen from the dead and how women hold a special place in the eyes of God and we're to treat them as co-heirs in Christ. And then there's this stone. If you've ever seen a, a stone sepulcher, uh, the one that's in the garden, uh, the garden tomb area, if you go over to Israel, uh, they have a section there where you have this little door, and it's been repaired a little bit, but you, you have to bend down to get into it because the door, it's, I, I would say it's probably about this high, maybe about four feet high, and you can get in there, and as you go inside, it may be the tomb of Jesus, we don't know, on the right-hand side, there's a ledge. On the left-hand side, there's another ledge, and that one has iron bars, so nobody goes over there on that side. But people take turns going inside, and you have to step over this, this hewned-out piece of stone, this ledge. And then there's this space, about one foot, and then you can walk into the small door. Well, that, that channel that is there is for a stone to be rolled or pushed it didn't have to be round. Uh, if it wasn't round, it was much more difficult to move. And these stones would have been 2,000 to 4,000 pounds. Now, if you want to get an idea how much that is, uh, I was moving some rocks this last week. And some of them were about this big. And some of them were like this big. Now, a ton of material, if you go buy material like sand or gravel or road base, a ton is usually close to the equivalent of a three-foot by three-foot by three-foot square. Imagine it being a solid rock. There's no way you're going to lift that thing. 2,000 pounds. Even the strongest men in the world, the strongman contest, they cannot move those stones. If you want to have a test of how heavy it might be, just take a wheelbarrow and fill it full of mixed concrete all the way to the top and try to run around your backyard with it and see, see how well you do. Or if you don't want to use concrete, and that's a little more heavy than just sand or dirt, if you use sand or dirt, pile it up nice and high and then try to run that around. It's not even close to a ton, but try to manage that. And so this stone that was rolled in front of the tomb or pushed in front of the tomb in that one-foot channel that was in front of the door... They had a seal on it, like a wax seal of some kind, maybe a ribbon coming off of that. And if anybody disturbed that, then they were going to be held accountable. And that's what they did. They put the, the guards there to, to seal that off. But that was moved in the morning. And by the way, the stone was not moved to let Jesus out. The stone was moved to let the women in to see what had taken place. Now, with that, as that stone is being moved, what if the women never went in and looked? They wouldn't know about the resurrection except for the angels telling them, but they wouldn't have seen it with their own eyes. They wouldn't have experienced it. Now, what do we do? As believers, we, even as non-believers, we hear about the tomb. We hear about the stone. I'm not going to go look in there. Why not? He's risen. And that's what the angel says. Why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? If you don't look in, if you don't examine it, you will never know for sure whether or not Jesus is risen from the dead. 
And that's what the new atheists are doing, which I'll get to in a minute. But the, these guys, they, they try to just say, no, it didn't happen. I'm not going to look at the evidence. And they cover their ears and blah, blah, blah. And they cover their eyes. I'm not going to. And they cover their ears. And they just don't want to hear it. They don't want to experience what the truth is. And so that has to do with the stone which is there. And Jesus tells us if we look inside, he will reveal himself to us. And I'm speaking metaphorically. Jeremiah 29:13 says, "You will seek me when you find me, excuse me. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you," declares the Lord. Deuteronomy 4:29, "But if from there you seek the Lord, your God, you will find him if you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul." Proverbs 8:17, "I love those who love me and those who seek me" find me. And so it, God reveals himself to us by the Holy Spirit who comes alongside. He prompts us to go towards him. And we either accept that and say, oh, I'm going to find out more about this. I'm going to seek after the Lord. I'm going to find out who this God is. And he says, if you do it with all your heart, I'm going to let you find me, is what he says. But if we never reach out and start to find him, we will get exactly what we're looking for. Nothing. We won't get Christ and neither will the world. And so we got to be like those who look in the tomb just to make sure. What did Peter and John do? Peter ran to the tomb. He got there first. What did he do? He looked inside because he was told that there was a resurrection. He had to see it for himself. And every person that wants to follow Christ has to do it for themselves. And then there was an earthquake. It was the second one. When Jesus died, there was an earthquake. When he rose from the dead, there was an earthquake. It's funny how... That which takes place in the spiritual realm has an effect here on earth. And there was an, a physical earthquake because Jesus rose from the dead. You know, he's the author of creation. And so whatever he does in his realm, it affects us. Here, remember Job? The sons of man, they, uh, the sons of God, they approached God and they said, Hey, I'm giving myself an account to, to you or giving my account of myself to you, God. And God turns to Satan and says, so what about Job? And what happened to Job? What took place in the spiritual realm affected Job, lost his, all of his children, all of his possessions, even his health. And so what takes place there affects us. And we can affect what takes place there. How do we do that? By prayer. If we're praying, we can affect the change on the other side. How does that work exactly? I have no idea, but God tells us to pray and it will affect what happens in the spiritual realm, which in turn affects us. And so that's how we're supposed to proceed. And that's the earthquake going on. Then the angel, verse five, said to the woman, do not be afraid for I know you were looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. Just as you said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So here we have a, a young man according to Mark chapter 16 verse 4. When you have in your mind a young man, how old is the man? In Jewish terms... It's 13. So you have this young man dressed in white sitting at the tomb. He's a teenager, but he's an angel. And it's like, wow, you're so young. 
is, would be my first impression uh, if I got there. We know from other scriptures that there was not just one angel, but there were two. It's not a contradiction. One person just reported that there was one. The other person reported that there were two. One, uh, the version in Luke chapter 24, verse 4, says they were dressed in white and it was dazzling. Probably like uh, glitter. You know, we would say glitter, but it was probably radiating. And that's one reason why they might be afraid showing up. They're like, who are you guys? What is going on here? The stones rolled away, and so they're completely confused, and the angels tell them, don't worry about it. And the angels, they, they showed up several times with Jesus. Uh, at the incarnation, remember, they appeared to Mary. It was Gabriel. And then the shepherds in the field, they, sh- they saw the angels. And then at the temptation, after the temptation of Christ, the angel ministered to Jesus. And during his affliction in Gethsemane, an angel came and ministered to him there. At the resurrection at the tomb, we had two that were there. And then at the ascension, when Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives, the disciples are all standing around going, where'd he go? And two guys show up and say, why are you guys standing around here? You know, get busy. Do what God told you to do. And there were two angels that were there. And so they showed up in the entire ministry of Jesus. But you know, with this story, I think the most touching part of it is Mary. In the Gospel of John, a very descriptive story of how when Mary saw Jesus, it says in John chapter 20, verse 3, So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter who was behind him, arrived and went in the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. She didn't know where Jesus was, and she loved Jesus. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated there, or seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. So when the disciples looked, no angels. When she looked in, there are the angels. And that's when he would have said, don't be afraid. They're dazzling white, you know, probably lighting up the inside of the tomb there. And it goes on to say, uh, verse 13, they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said. Now, you have to imagine, she's probably crying so much, it's hard for her to get the words out. And tears are just streaming down her face. And she says, I don't know where they have put them. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. Now I could see that. (laughs) She said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him And cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me. She was clinging 
with all of her strength down at his feet and would not let go. She, was, she had that, you know, like little kids, when they get to be that toddler age, they wrap themselves around your ankle and you walk around with the, the toddler. She was grabbing hold with a tenacious grip. She didn't want to let go. She's probably at this point crying because of tears of joy that she actually saw him. He says, do not hold on to me for I have yet to return to my father. Go and say to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my father and your father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. What a great story. I'm so glad John put that in there. It kind of humanizes everything there because when we experience a death, it's tough already. But thinking that it's the Messiah, the Son of God, and you've been with him for these three years plus, and it's just marvelous to have that in there. Verse 8, So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So Jesus met them. They were filled with joy. They worshipped at that time. And they were told to go to Galilee. When we encounter Jesus, Jesus fills us with joy. I mean, when you get saved, you're filled with this inner peace, which is there. We desire to worship him, the one true God. Then he gave them a task. What was the task? Go to Galilee. He didn't just say, hi, how you doing? See you later. He gave them something to do. And so they're supposed to show up to Galilee. When we get saved, God gives us something to do. We're supposed to do it. Well, what is that thing? You had one job to do. We're going to look at that. Verse 11, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came in the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets back to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. This is continuing to this very day. This has not ended. The body of Jesus was stolen. You know, there was um, The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. I read that. It's a wonderful book to read, way off in its truth and reality. It doesn't even match up, but it's a page turner. You go through that. That's why they made it into a movie, because it was such a good book. I finished it in like two days. I was down in um, Palm Desert. I said, I have to read this thing at the time. And I went through it. And that is where Jesus, he really didn't die And he married Mary Magdalene and had children and hid himself away. That's what he did. And then there's the Passover plot by Hugh Schoenfeld where Jesus, it says, he carefully planned fulfilling the prophecies in the Bible, planned his own crucifixion and his resurrection. He did all of that. It was a big scheme that he was involved in. That Schoenfeld, he has lots of books that they're just way off. And so it has continued to this day. But I want to tell you a couple of books, and maybe you want to read them. Uh, it would be great if you did. And they go into more detail than you would ever want to have. 
for the, the authentication of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These guys dug in, and all of them that I'm going to tell you, they started out wanting to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ because they were sick of these Christians and their Jesus, and they didn't want anything to do with that. I'm going to prove this wrong, is what they said. And they all got saved. Every one of them got saved when they looked at the evidence. One of the books is No God But One, uh, Allah or Jesus by Nabi'il Qureshi. I, I think I told you about that book. I just read it a while ago. It was a Muslim who was saying, no, Allah is the way. And he started examining the claims of Jesus and the evidence. He became a Christian. And also Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. You will get more evidence in that book than you can stomach. I mean, you, he talks about fragments of papyri and names the numbers and gives references and material. And if you want to become a scholar, that's the book to go to. And also, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Uh, that is a great book. He was an investigative reporter in law and criminal uh, cases. And he decided, okay, I'm going to talk to all the experts and I'm going to find out what's going on. He ended up becoming, he's a pastor today. And he was just a journalist before. And so you can go to those books that lie is still continuing, which is out there, and there's ways to refute it. Now, this cover-up that is here in verse 11. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything. Oh, excuse me, I already read that. Now, with also this, this um, attempt to cover up the story, I'm going to give you two videos that you can watch. I gave these two videos to the youth group. We watched them. One is Evolution versus Creation by Ray Comfort. And this is where he goes to a couple of places. He goes to UCLA. Uh, I think he goes to USC. He goes to the pier down at uh, Huntington Beach. And he interviews people. And he went to a couple of the professors. And he said, you know, this evolution and creation, could you give me an example of a change of kind because they always talk about modification inside of particular species, but they never talk about the jump from one species to another, like from a dog to a cat or from a seal to an elephant or something like that. You get the picture, what I'm talking about. So he went into these professors and he said, can you give me an example of a change of kind? And he said, and it's not the finches on the Galapagos Islands that Darwin saw because the beaks changed. He goes, no, that's variation within the species. I want to know if a bird became a lizard or a lizard became a bird. And we have evidence of that. And you can see the professors, uh, no, I can't. And he, he really makes a fool out of them because they think they know about evolution and they're prideful and they start cussing and he gives them the gospel. And it's quite a, and it's on YouTube, you can watch it. And also um, 180 by Ray Comfort. Now that's a little more uh, intense, but it deals with Nazism and the death of the people and abortion today. And he makes the case to some of these people at UCLA and they totally change their mind by the end of the video because they've had the truth. They get the truth, not what they've been told. And by the way, all the youth... They have been told abortion is the way to go. That's the thing. That's what they're being taught in school. Now, going on here, there is the commission, the job that we have been given. Verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, and some doubted. 
Of course, that was doubting Thomas. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, this wasn't just for the 12 apostles. This is for all disciples of Jesus that we're supposed to go out once we become a disciple and replicate. We're supposed to grab somebody else and say, shake them. Do you know Jesus? No, not like that. You just say, hey, I want to tell you about the gospel. I, I want to tell you what's going on. We don't like to do that. Now, however we do that, that's the one job. We have one job, and that's to make disciples. Now ask yourself, are you doing that? Am I doing that? Now if you cop out, go, well, I'm discipling my children. No, it's someone else. Always someone else. And if you get to somebody and they start to become a disciple, good. Raise them up, maintain contact and find another one is what we're supposed to do. Now, how do we do that? We prepare for that. We're supposed to go and listen to messages, go to church. We're supposed to study to show ourselves approved. All of these things, we have one job. Now, those lines that are being painted on the road, which one was yours? The one on the left or the one on the right as we were looking at? Which one is yours? Are you just going to, no, I don't want to do that right now. I'm just going to meander back and forth. Is that it? Or do you spell only O L? N-Y or O-N-L-Y or stop, S-O-T-P? Is that what you're doing? And, you know, I, I, we talk about, yeah, like that. Is, is that how you're making disciples? Well, I really don't have time to study. You know, it's not hard. Just put the T before the O. That's all we have to do. But we, we fill our lives full of other things and we say, I don't have time for this. We have lots of time in eternity, and we want to make sure we're affecting the people around us. And so, of course, at this point, you might say, well, what does a fully mature disciple look like? And it goes like this. Somebody's told about Christ, they accept Christ. They get baptized. That's in Scripture. If you believe, get baptized. They ingest the word. They take it in. And they continue to take it in. Then, once they take it in, they follow it. They do what it says there. Now, there's a little problem with that because some people, the way that they interpret, but if they learn to interpret properly, it's really not an issue. It's those who don't learn to interpret properly, that's an issue. But they're supposed to follow it. Then they're supposed to seek to exemplify it to others. There's supposed to be that example. Some people say, well, I let my life speak of my discipleship. No, you're supposed to have that be a witness, but we're supposed to open our mouths and tell people. We're actually supposed to give a reason for the hope that lies within. And then uh, it does not need anyone to teach them, this disciple, does not want, need anyone to teach them the elementary truths of Christ again. They have arrived. They know what the Bible says. They understand about the death, burial, and resurrection. They understand about baptism. They understand about the laying on of hands. All of these things to where they could go up to somebody and fully disciple them. That's how you know you're fully mature. If you can disciple somebody else. God wants us all to be fully mature. There are scriptures 
all through Scripture about being, there are verses all through Scripture about being mature, about doing what Christ has asked us to do. So, are you fully mature? How long have you been a Christian? And by the way, when you talk about biblical truth, it gets uncomfortable because our flesh says, I don't want to hear this. Remember that blah, 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 don't tell me that. Because the flesh says, no, you don't want to do that. You have other pursuits. Why are you going down that road? So fully mature disciple, that's what God wants us to be. And we need to take inventory. That's the great commission. Go and make disciples. My prayer for you is that you get this burning in your heart to go talk to somebody. Not just be an example but to explain to them God's truth and how much he has loved us. My prayer for you is that you have such strength, intestinal fortitude to open up your mouth that it just flows like a waterfall going downhill, that it just pours out of you. And once you get the chance to fully experience God using you, it's almost like heroin, now in a good way. It doesn't kill you. You're already dead in Christ. But it, it, it gives you such a sense of joy on the inside, like, wow, God, you used me. And he goes, I know. That's what I've been waiting for, is to use you, and you did good. And he's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have come to full maturity. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word and how we are supposed to just walk in the newness of life and do everything that we can without fearing the repercussions because you have called us and you told us, you gave us a promise that you would be with us to the very end of the age. So there is nothing that we need to fear but help us, Lord, to die to ourselves and live for you. For this is why we were created. May we return to that for which you have purposed us in this life. In Jesus' name, amen.